Amen. You can have a seat. We're going to continue singing in just a moment, but first I'm just going to share a few announcements. The snow is a good uh, prelude to this because we are coming up to our Christmas season. So there's just a few things I want to point out on the calendar. You can see all this stuff in, the, in your bulletin, but just bring it to your attention from up front. On the 9th, there's going to be a, kind of a fellowship gathering and a fun time here. Uh, that's Saturday afternoon, uh, and there's a gift exchange. You don't have to uh, bring a gift, but it's an opportunity to bring uh, maybe some of that odd or quirky item that you'd like to uh, pass off to someone in a white elephant type of exchange. There also is going to be food. We want people to bring uh, some kind of a snack item, something sweet or salty or whatever your favorite Christmas cookies may be. So check that out. That's uh, more details in the bulletin. There's also going to be I believe the week, that same weekend uh, on the 10th, a bake sale for some of our high schoolers are going to bring some home-baked uh, Christmas items as a fundraiser for a conference that some of them will be attending the first week of the year. And then last but not least, on December 17th is our Christmas program. So that's going to be a fun uh, morning, a fun Sunday, where we'll get to hear from a lot of our younger generation are going to come up with some songs and and uh, some things to uh, encourage us as we approach Christmas. So with that, we're going to sing a song that might be uh, unfamiliar for a Sunday morning. Hopefully maybe enough of you know it that you'll be able to join in. But uh, Aaron texted me this week. He's like, hey, what do you think about doing this song? And uh, God's been teaching me with it. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. But I also want maybe you to, sh to share a short uh, word about it. So he's going to do that before we uh, sing this next song. Yeah, so I'm kind of a, um, a music snob, like I either like something or I don't, there's kind of no in-between, so I have a bad habit of, you know, I'm on my way to work, I'm listening to some music, I'm rocking out, you know, whatever it may be, and uh, I hear a song that comes on, I'm like, eh, man, you know, I don't know this song, just skip over it, it kind of takes me a little while to try some, some new different, uh, do different songs, but for whatever reason, I was listening to um, a song, and then it skipped to the next one. And uh, this was a song that it skipped to, and it's called Another in the Fire. And uh, a lot of you guys know that next Sunday will be our last Sunday here at Creekside, and that is going to be extremely hard for us. Um, the way that this, this body of believers has shepherded our family and served our family and um, how you've uplifted us and loved us, and it's, uh, it has been one of the joys of my life to worship with you all and to be here with you all and our family has been so touched by everything that so many here have done with a smile on your face and that's where you see the love of God not just in what he does for you but in the way that other people serve you that's how we show our love for Christ and there have been a lot of things that have went on with this move that have been hard that 
I mean, um, you know, my, my wife, Kara, she's from South Central Nebraska, and, um, you know, moving 16 hours away from her family is, is hard um, to be closer to my family, and um, there's a lot that we're leaving, and this has been a complete move of faith for us. It's been um, really challenging, and I mean, I don't even have a job down there yet, and uh, I'm not the most patient person in the world, and I think this may be God's way of teaching me some patience, but uh, this song, Come On, and Honestly, as, a, as a, somebody that doesn't really, um, you know, show a lot of sad emotion or, or anything like that, this song made me cry because it just made me realize, like, no matter what it is that me or my family may be going through, like, there is another in the fire, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he died for all of us, and that whatever it is that we're going through, like, uh, there's, there's a, a, a verse in the song, um, a, a line in the song that says, I'll count the joy in every battle, come every battle, because I know that's where you'll be. And that is absolutely true. So we really hope that you like this song, and I hope that um, it, it hits you the same way that God gave it to me. When the heart is under fire Another way when the walls are closing in And when I look at the space between Where I used to be and this reckoning I know I will never be alone There was another in the fire Standing next to me, there was another in the waters, holding back the seas. And should I ever need reminding how I've been set free, there is a cross that bears the burden where another died for me. There is another in the fire. Darkness. 
darkness as the darkness bows to him i can hear the roar in the heavens as the space between west and i can feel the ground shake beneath us as the prison walls get in nothing stands between us nothing stands between Welcome each of you here this morning. If you do happen to be here as a guest and this is your first time at Creekside Church, uh, on the bulletin there is an additional fold on the bulletin and we'd ask you to, if you could at some point, fill that out and complete it and you can put it in the offering box which is on the welcome table as you leave the sanctuary. And if you're part of a regular church family, that additional fold is also for you. Uh, If you have a prayer request or you want to express a need or you have an interest in um, getting more information on something, uh, you can fill that out and we'd be glad to try to respond to that as best we can. I'm going to invite you to worship with me as we look into the Word, but let's begin with prayer. Father, as we pause on this kind of uh, cold, wintry morning, uh, we come before you. Uh, praying that we might worship you in spirit and in truth and asking that you would open our eyes that we might behold the truths of your word that they might soak into our hearts and wash over our hearts and our minds we might be transformed and changed and molded and shaped into the image of Christ in whose name we pray amen I noticed that our furnace technician had lost weight and I said hey looks like you lost some weight And he said, yeah, I went to the doctor, and the doctor said I had high blood pressure and high cholesterol, and so uh, I needed to lose some weight, and he began to do so. It wasn't until he knew that he had a problem that he was uh, willing to get some some help. And what's normal for most of us is, uh, most of us, uh, we prefer to to live in denial over finding a, a diagnosis for what's going on, right? We just kind of tend to live like... Well, I got a problem, I feel some pain, or I'm, but yeah, it's going to get better, I'll, I'll get better. So we live in denial rather than search for the diagnosis because we're afraid of the painful reality that might come if we understand what the diagnosis is and what the treatment might involve. We treat our spiritual lives in much the same way. We approach our spiritual maladies are diseases in much the same way. See, we like to live in denial, believing that really we are basically good, and that's part of the uh, humanistic philosophy, right, that, that the world is being taught. Mankind is basically good, but uh, in saying that, we have to ignore the reality of our lives, because we know that we're not basically good, and we don't always do what's basically good. We, we, and so then, through medication, uh, through intoxication, and sometimes through personal extermination, we deny, deflect, or distance ourselves from the guilt that comes from realizing that we're not really basically good people, that we are really bad people, but we don't want to face the guilt, and so we try to disregard it and shovel it away and and do away with it. And what's reality is that the the source of the guilt is uh, what the Bible talks about as sin, our sin nature. And the result of sin is death. Uh, The Bible says the wages of sin is death. 
in Romans 6.23. And the solution for sin, or the guilt that's caused by sin, is the salvation from sin's power. In other words, if the disease is really sin, then in order to treat the disease, we must eliminate the sin. But in order for us to eliminate the sin and remove that disease, we must know that we're sick. And so the Apostle Paul has been uh, introducing us to what he says is the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. But in order for us to be saved, we must know that we need to be saved. In order for me to be healthy, I must know that I'm sick and need the treatment and then have the treatment that deals with the sickness. And so Paul has been marching us through in Romans chapter 1, beginning with verse uh, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, which we're going to finish up with today, this awareness of the fact that we're ill, (laughs) that we have this deadly disease, this deadly spiritual illness um, that needs to be remedied. And so today, in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, he culminates this discussion of making us aware of our disease. And in doing so, he concludes that everyone, that's all the Jews and all the Gentiles, is, is, is guilty of sin. And our greatest need, then, is to have the, the cancer cut out. The cancer of sin cut out. And that's possible only through the person and the work of what Jesus did on the cross. And so Paul is paving the way for us to get to the cross by illumining and making us aware of our guilt. And so if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 3. And we're going to read verses 9 through 20. And in this text, Paul presents two reasons why all humans are guilty before God, and I added this, uh, they're guilty before God and then in need of God's grace. Okay, We're guilty, but we don't just leave us there. We're guilty before God, but we're in need of God's grace. I'm in Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 9, reading through verse 20, and I'm in the New American Standard. You can look on the screen, or if you want to reach underneath the seat in front of you, there's a Bible, or if you have one on your phone, or however, that's great. Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have all charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's, no, there's none who understands, there's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is no none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, their tongues, with their tongues they, are, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. I said there are two reasons. I see two reasons from the text. You can break the text down in a lot of different ways. Uh, I was reading one commentary and there's like 11 points. You know, it's like, okay, so, okay. But these are the two ways that I've broken down the text. First of all, we're, 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 we're guilty before God 
because of our inability to keep the law. That's why one of the ways. And there's two ways we're proven deficient in our ability to keep the law. And first of all, we're all, we're all charged as guilty. Okay? In verse 9, he starts it with, what then? And the what then introduces an anticipated question given the discussion that has come before about the advantage of the Jews. Remember, he kind of was down on the Jews at the end of verse uh, chapter 2. And so then the Jews said, well, uh, the, the natural question, well, what is the advantage of the Jews? Well, he spent verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3 talking about the advantage of the Jews. And, uh, and, and that uh, then, then he says, well, then uh, how, they're, how they're, 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 they're guilty. And then, so what is the advantage? And if 1 through 3 says we're guilty, then what is the advantage? So this is the question. Are the Jews better than the Gentiles? We have this advantage, verses 1 through 8. So are we better than them? In what way are we better? That would be the question. How, how do you mean better? Are we better than the Jews? Do we Jews possess a nature superior to the Gentiles, giving us a better standing before God? Is kind of the way I would understand it. And what's Paul's answer? Very terse, very direct. Not at all. Jews are not at all better human beings than the Gentiles. Well, why is that so? Why not? Well, in verse, the, the, the reason is given at the end of verse 20, or verse 10, 9, I'm sorry. Not at all. For we, for, this is the reason, for we have already charged that both Jews, uh, chapter 2, beginning verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 29, Chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, which we're going to talk about. The Jews aren't better. We've already charged that they aren't better. We've already charged that the, the, the Greeks aren't better. Now, Greeks equals Gentiles, okay? So when you see the word Greeks in there, that's the, the Gentiles, because in that culture, the, the, the Gentiles were uh, Greek language, Greek culture. That's who they were. So he says, are, are they better? No, they're not better, not at all. Why not? We've already charged that the most vile Greek... Chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, bad. We've also charged that the most visibly moral Jew, chapter 2, basically all of chapter 2, all are under sin's dominion and destined for destruction. Everybody's a mess. So you came here this morning, and this is not a feel-good sermon. Because I came to tell you this morning what Paul told the people in Rome, you're all a mess. In case you didn't know that, uh, it's the, the drumbeat uh, of this text. We're all messed up. We're all messed up. And there's no exceptions. The entire human race is charged as guilty before God. And there's no room for boasting since apart from Christ, we're all equally condemned. There's really no room for boasting. I thought about this passage in Luke chapter 18. You know, there's a story of the, uh, the, the publican and the, and, the, and the priest, and they go to, they go to the temple. And now uh, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were, get the word, trusted themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, and one a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and began to praying this in regard to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, swindlers and crooked and adulterers, and even like this tax collector. 
Now we also, so, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm thankful, God, that I'm not like them, like them you know. I'm, I'm so much better. Not. Because the, the publican would re- refuse the tax collector. He wouldn't even raise his eyes because of his humility. And then Jesus goes on to say, which one went away justified? No, not the self-righteous guy. It was the humble, broken, broken person. You see, Jews and Gentiles stand equally in need of God's grace. Romans 3.23, which we're going to get to next week, all have sinned. And as my, one of my favorite profs in seminary used to say, all means all, and that's all all means. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we are charged as guilty, and then he goes on to say that we're confirmed as guilty. Notice in text it says, as it is written, which points us directly to the Old Testament text, and then he strings together a a list of Old Testament quotations in verses 10 through 18 in order to punctuate his point that all are messed up. And guess what? He's targeting particularly and not primarily, but not exclusively, the Jews who have been entrusted. He's just said that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. How are they advantaged? Well, you have the law. That's the one thing that he, the first thing that he highlights. And guess what he goes to here? The law. Now, when we see the law here, it doesn't mean strictly the Pentateuch because he never quotes from the Pentateuch in the list of verses that he comes to in verses 10 through 18. But we see this. He, he, we're confirmed as guilty. And Paul appeals to the Scripture as the authoritative confirmation that every unregenerate human being, first to the Jew and then the Gentile, is guilty of sin. And condemned before God. And there's two realms in which, uh, of human existence in which he confirms that we're messed up. First of all, uh, our perspective is corrupt. In verses 10 through 12. And 10 through 12 is basically a quotation from Psalm 14. Verses 1 through 13. And it's also repeated in Psalm 53. Verses 1 through 3. And so he's drawing directly from the psalmist. Okay. And he runs through these verses in 10 through 12, and you'll see if you would underline it, if you go through and underline, every time you see the word none or not, not uh, or none or n- no one or not even six times. None, 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 not even, not even, not even, none. Six times. Punctuating that all are unrighteous. There are none who are righteous. So God's assessment of fallen mankind's heart condition is that they all deny God. Psalm 14, verse 1 begins, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But interestingly enough, Paul doesn't quote that part of verse 1. He starts at the end of verse 1. But that part of verse 1 is in the context. So they deny God, and, and, and nobody apart from They deny that God exists, and nobody apart from Jesus Christ has, does, or will complete in our attitudes or actions be completely obedient to what God's Word says. There is none righteous, he starts out. There there is not even one. None righteous, he begins. None righteous. Nobody meets up to the standard of God's perfection, of God's perfect standard that he calls us to. 
And to anybody who's arrogant, if you look at verse 10, anybody who's arrogant enough to think they might be the exception, certainly couldn't be talking about me, not even one. It's kind of a double negative, right? Not even one, or not totally a double negative, but not even one. Now, not even one person is, is even close, although some may be a little bit further along in being nice than other people. I mean, you might say that uh, Elon Musk is, 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 does more good than Vladimir Putin. But neither one, as far as I know, is redeemed. They're both sinners. Okay. You see, we aren't good to God unless we're as good as God. Who's as good as God? God. And, and, all those who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Because we have the righteousness of God in Him, in Him. Not even one. Romans 3.23 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let's just say this. If, uh, if we were all to stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, let's just say we're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, okay? So we're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, looking at the other side, and we're, we're all lined up like this. Okay? Make a line. All along the edge of the Grand Canyon. Okay, now we're going to do, do a long jump. Standing long jump. All right? And we're all going to... And we're going to jump to the other side. That's the goal, right? We're jumping to the other side. Now, if we're all stupid enough to do this, um, some of you real athletic types, you might make it a little bit further out before you crash and burn than, than, than the rest of us. But nobody's getting there. And so each of us in our own humanity is trying to reach to the other side, which is glory. It's God's perfect standard and none of us is going to make it. And that's the point that Paul is trying to drive home. None would make it. That's the bad news, right? That's the horrible, awful bad news is that all of us as human beings are never going to make it to God in our own power, in our own strength. That's the bad news. And we must know the bad news. We must have the diagnosis. We must know the disease before we can get the treatment. And the good news is that God made a way. He made it possible for us to be righteous and perfect in Christ Jesus. Through Christ, we can be made perfect in Him and Him alone. That's what he says. And then he goes on and he says, there's no one who understands. And he's quoting Psalm 14, verse 2. Nobody who understands. The human mind is spiritually ignorant. We're spiritually ignorant of our own depravity and of God's nature and of God's word and of God's person. We, we just don't understand. We're unable to discern his truth. You know, we looked at Romans chapter 1 and creation testifies to the reality of who God is. And there's enough evidence in creation to hold us guilty before God. But you know what there's not enough evidence in creation to do? To make us right with God. There's only enough evidence to alert us because we cannot come to this awareness of God and who He is. We don't have the capacity in ourselves to know God personally. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. In and of ourselves, we just don't come there. And 
Then in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this, that it's our innate hardness of heart. It's just being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Why are they ignorant? Because of the hardness of their heart. It's the hardness of our heart that leads us to ignorance, which keeps us outside of God's family. Outside of the life which is in God. It's because of our own hardness. It insulates and isolates it's from us, the life which is only possible for us to break through the ignorance and break through the darkness if God the Father works on our behalf. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. It must be a work of the Spirit of God, the Father working through the Spirit, to, to aware, awaken us and alert us to our need for God. And we won't have that awareness, as uh, Jesus said, or John said, faith comes by hearing and hearing by, uh, Paul says later, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We must hear the word. None of us is there. And there is none, he goes on, in, 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 quoting Psalm 14, verse 2, and I'm following down through Romans chapter 3, verses 9. He says, there is none who understands, verse 11, there is none who seeks after God. This is verse 11, there is none who seeks after God. Why not? Because our heart is heartened. And because our heart is heartened, we don't see we have a need for God. I don't know if you've ever had this privilege. Uh, some of you, yes, some of you know. Go to the swimming pool, and you have toddler with you. And you have toddlers at the swimming pool, and uh, there's a deep end. And the toddler is like, oh, swimming pool, great. You know, water, have fun. And they're running along the side of the, the deep end, oblivious to the danger. They have no clue that if they go into the water there, they would drown without help or assistance. They don't see their need for help. Every human being apart from Christ is the toddler, teetering on the edge and destined for destruction. They don't need it. They don't see that they're, they're, they're in need of this help. And, and, and then he says, all have turned aside. Not only do they not seek God. Oh, it's worse than that. It's not that I'm not seeking God. It's that I'm actually going the other way from God. I'm turning away from God. And Isaiah describes this in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. Right? But the Lord has caused the, the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. Each one of us is going our own way. I got my own plan, God. And so what happens in our natural mind is that we, we turn away from the way of salvation, which leads to life, which is found in Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The Philippian jailer says to Paul, how can I be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Oh, but we're walking away. We're doing our own thing. Why? And the way that we're going leads to death. That's what Solomon said, the wisest man in the world in Proverbs chapter um, uh, 12. He says, that, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, he says, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. But a person who listens to advice is wise. And then in 14, uh, uh, 12, he said this, there is a way which seems right to a person. It leads to death. You see, we have to know we're on the wrong path. This leading to death in order for us to make correction and go on the right path that leads to life. I saw a movie one time, a uh, story based on a true story, uh, about uh, they were in a small airplane, 
you know, and they were flying near the ocean. And the pilot had a heart attack and died. And there's this guy and his wife and their kids in the plane. And so the guy jumps behind the, the, the seat. They drug the guy, you know, the dead pilot to the back. Sorry to be, not to be too graphic here. Uh, but they, the, the, the passenger jumped into the cockpit, you know. He didn't know how to fly a plane. And then they went through this huge electric storm, which knocked out their navigation system. And so he found himself, well, he didn't know this, but he was flying out over the ocean, short on fuel, uh, headed in the wrong direction, headed towards destruction. But then somehow, I don't even remember how, they, they were made aware that they're going the wrong direction, so they reversed course and headed back towards the land where they made the safe landing and lived. You see, every human being, apart from Christ, is flying out over the ocean, headed for death. We're going our own way, a way that leads to death. And unless we're made aware of woo-woo, flashing lights, woo-woo-woo, going the wrong direction, and make the adjustment, the course adjustment, we will end in death and, and rather than, than life. And then drawing again on, on Psalm 14, uh, verse 3, Paul charges that, and he keeps going here, he says that together, verse 12, and all they have turned aside, together they have become useless. Spiritually dead people are spiritually worthless. Useless. Worthless. They have no value. They're just like, and Jesus talks about this in John chapter 15, verse 5, they're like the branch that's broken away from the vine. What do you do with the branch that's broken away from the vine? You pick it up and you throw it into the fire because that's all it's good for. It's good for nothing. And every spiritually darkened person, hardened heart that's rebellion against God is like that branch. He's become useless and headed for the fire. And then he goes on, and there is no one who does good. Now, again, he comes back. Don't you like the way that there's a kind of this, he, he returns to what he said in verse 10. There's no one who does good. There is not even one. He repeats the emphasis of verse 1 and provides a summary of that section. Guess what? Everyone is guilty. None is righteous. He repeats it. Nobody apart from faith in Christ is righteous before God. That's the perspective that we have. Now he talks about our practices which are corrupt. And there's two forms of these practices, corrupt in our communication, and then we're corrupt in our conduct. He talks about the corruption of our communication first in verses 13 through 17. There is a, their throat is an open grave. I, I looked at that when I read it, I go, what in the world does that mean? Like an open grave. Okay, so there's nobody in there? Um, uh, what does that mean? No. An open grave is that the person was too poor to have a grave that could be covered. And so there is a decaying, wretched, stinking, rotting body inside this open grave that is wafting out all of this putrid smell. The unregenerate person speaks putrid stuff. It spews from their mouth like the stench from an open grave. That's the picture that he's, that he's painting for us in this. 
They open their mouth, it's putrid words. And Jesus made a comment about this in Matthew chapter 12, verse uh, 34. He says that out of the, and this is the end of the verse, I'm just going to quote the end of the verse, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, if the fool has said in his heart there is no God, doesn't believe in God, then what comes out of his mouth? Godless stuff that stinks and is, and is wretched. And when he, when he said this, their throat is an open grave, guess what? He's quoting Psalm 5, verse 9. Okay. Now consider three manifestations of this rotten or this putrid smelling talk that, that spews forth. First of all, there is deception. He says, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. I, I missed that the first time I read it. They keep deceiving. It's not that they, they, they tell one little white lie. Now they keep deceiving. Now I would say this is the, the nature of the unconverted person, the, un, the unregenerate person. But guess what? Every believer is tempted and sometimes falls into this trap because of our fallen nature. So they keep deceiving. Per, perpetual and repeated deception is normal for the fallen man. Now, I may get in real big trouble here, but I'm going to wade out into the, the water and just say that during the COVID pandemic, we were deceived, perpetually deceived by government agencies that are supposed to be responsible for our health. We were deceived by politicians. We were deceived by the, the media about the origin and how to safely treat COVID. Repeatedly. But you know what? Hey, that's their song. The unregenerated people are just singing their song. That's the way it goes. And you deal with some of these people. And you go, why did they, 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 just, they just lied to me? Yeah, that's what they do. That's who they are. This is the nature of the beast. And guess what? In God's eyes, it's an abomination. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17 uh, say that there are seven things, six things that are an abomination, okay? The Lord hates. And guess what the second one is? You see it. The second one is a lying tongue, a lying tongue. So there is deception. There is death. The text goes on in a quote, a partial quote of Psalm 140, verse 3, and says the poison of asps, which is a snake, okay, like a cobra, all right, it's a, uh, is under their, their lips. Their words are critical and condemning. They inflict wounds that degrade, that denigrate, that discourage, that dishearten people. The words, the lips of the unregenerate do that. What do the lips of the righteous do? Proverbs chapter 10, verse 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, death or life. But the mouth of the wicked conceives Violent, conceals violence. That's what they do. There is, not only is there deception, not only is there death, but there is destruction. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness, which is a quote from Psalm 10, verse 7, where destruction uh, is, is uh, the mean, or the cursing, I'm sorry, cursing is the worst, uh, wanting the worst for another person. I curse them, I want the worst for them. And bitterness is open hostility. So the wicked are constantly castigating and criticizing and condemning other people. When I read this, I thought, you know, there's one dude in the Bible that I just, I'm, I'm just really, 
I just like, boy, this guy's crazy. Uh, now, there's a lot of them in there, but this is the one guy that I thought of. In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, the guy's name is Shimei. And, uh, and some of you remember the story. David is being run out of Jerusalem by his uh, whacked-out son, Absalom. And, uh, and, and David is running and running. And then this guy by the name of Shimei. Now, David's surrounded by his, his, uh, his, his uh, you know, 18 bodyguards. And this dude, Shimei, is kicking dust at him and, and, uh, and throwing stuff at him. And he says, this is what Shimei said when, when, he, cur- when he cursed Go away, go away, you man of bloodshed, talking to David, the king, worthless man. The Lord has brought back upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have become king. And the Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. And behold, you are caught in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. He's cursing him. Cursing and bitterness. This is the king. And then at one point, one of David's men says, hey, should I just off him? Um, this is my paraphrase, okay, it didn't really in the Bible. Uh, but should I just off him? Do I just take him out? And David says, you know what? No, just chill out because maybe the Lord told him to curse me. Now we read, if you fast forward a little while, uh, David becomes, he comes back, he becomes king, then he's going to die. And he, and he tells his son, he says, hey, you remember that guy Shimei? I said I wasn't going to hurt him. You know what to do. You see, when you curse the Lord's anointed, which remember David's life, that was what he refused to do. He refused to raise up his hand against the Lord's anointed. When you curse the Lord's anointed, it will not be taken lightly. It comes back to you. But this is the wicked. They, they do this. There's cursing and bitterness is in their lips. And I, I, I love this assessment, although it's very penetrating and convicting in James, because he talks about <clears throat> the, the tongue of the wicked. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our body parts as that which defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. And for those of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're not exempt from uh, dabbling in the waters of a tongue set on fire by hell. Uh, because some of the things that emanate from our mouths, some of the things that are pro- proclaimed by us, m- mimic the words of the ungodly, the fallen person. And there we need to repent and come back. And mankind's decadence isn't just in our communication, it's in our conduct. As David goes on, or as Paul goes on to talk about in, in, in verse 15, he says this, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Swift to shed blood. Wow. Um, anybody read the news lately? Or seen the news? Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. And think about the genocidal attack on the innocent Israelis that took place by Hamas. Think about the millions of innocent infants in the womb whose lives have been taken. Think about the Uyghur people who are being exterminated in China. Think about a 47-year-old man in northeast Iowa who was taking the trash out from his business and was just shot randomly by some guy who was just driving by because he wanted to shoot somebody. 
The guy was from Illinois, supposed to be in jail. Department of Corrections didn't know he wasn't in jail. But he just off somebody because he was there. The proclivity of the human person to exterminate other human life is prevalent all the way, all over the place. And yet we, we become shocked. And Paul says this is human nature. It's part of who the human fallen person is. And Isaiah decries this vice. And in, 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 in verse 15, he's quoting Isaiah 59. And he decries this, this advice. I want you to read Isaiah 59, verse 7. It's up on the screen. Their feet run to evil. You see where Paul's getting this? Their feet run to evil and they hurry to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are the thoughts of wrongdoing. Devastation and destruction are in their paths, which we're getting to. Devastation and destruction. This is the way of the, of the fallen person. And he's saying this is right out of the Old Testament. In verse 16, he says this. Destruction and misery in their paths. You see the end of verse 7 in Isaiah 59? It's right there. That's what he's talking about. Generalized destruction. Destruction brought upon by human depravity. You've seen the story. You've seen the pictures, right? People, I saw this. Now, humor me, I guess. Uh, the Babylon Bee had this, this, this picture. And it said, don't go to the Black Friday sales. Wait for the next peaceful protest. And it shows a guy, you know, with a mask on, looting a, a TV, you know. And we laugh because it's kind of funny, but the reality is the looting that has taken place is just part of the destruction. The looting that takes place. The, the, the Ukrainian cities that are sitting in rubble is part of the destruction that's part of the fallen world and the humanity in which we live. And then there's misery is, is a result of the destruction. It's, it's the, the, the pain as a part of the destruction that takes place. And my, I can't think about it too much, but I think about the, the amount of horror that must be in the lives of those who have been humanly trafficked across our southern border is just horrific. And that's just one example of the misery that comes as a result of the destruction of, of, of sinful people. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 8, which is quoted in verse 17 of chapter 3 in Romans. And the path of peace have they not known. And they do not know the way of peace. They only know conflict. This is the way of the world. And we look around our world and we see the world in chaos. And I think about, oh, there's a, there's a war in, in Ukraine and Russia. The Israelis against Hamas. There's protests in Spain. And the Irish people are burning down hotels. And you look and you go, what is going on? We see in our own country, people marching on the streets, some more supporting, you know, genocide. Okay, it's right here. Destruction, the absence of peace. They don't know peace. They do not, they, 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 the path of peace have they not known. The wicked know only hostility unless and until they embrace the peace that is found only in the person of Jesus. We're getting there, but in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And only those who are at peace with God will be at peace with God's children. 
and, and people created by God. You must be at peace with God in order to be at peace with others who are created in the image of God. And then Paul concludes with a summary statement about the ungodly in chapter 3, verse 18, which is a quote from Psalm 36, where he says this, There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is the ungodly. There is no fear of God before the ungodly. Quoting Psalm 36, verse 1, what do you mean fear of God? Well, there's two ways we can understand the fear of God. And first of all, there's a reverential fear. An awe of God's holiness and His righteousness and His majesty, which is part and parcel of how every child of God, every regenerate person, believes the perspective of every true believer. And it's the beginning of wisdom. This reverential fear of God. And so I get it. You know, some people say, yeah, well, what do you just, you just kind of walk into church and you don't care. You know, you go to Europe and you walk into one of the cathedrals and you know why they created them the way they did? Because they wanted to give you an awe, a reverential fear of God. When you walked into a cathedral, you're going, oh, wow. You're supposed to see God there. I mean, in, in, not in a real sense, but in a, a figurative sense. But there's no fear. Of that. But that's not, I don't think, the fear of God that he's saying that the ungodly don't have. They don't have it, obviously, because they don't fear God at all. But they don't have the, the dreadful fear. It's not the reverential fear of God that's absent. It is, but it's not the first fear that's absent. The first fear that's absent is the dreadful fear of God. And the dreadful fear of God is the horror of God's inevitable and terrible wrath. Which incentivizes believers, like, I mean, believers in Proverbs chapter 16, we're supposed to be in fear of God, is supposed to keep us in line. But it's also supposed to bring repentance in the life of the ungodly. Whoa. You see, you must know the sickness. You must know the disease. If we don't know the disease, we don't know the diagnosis. And we don't know the diagnosis of everyone caught in the disease of sin is condemnation before a holy and righteous God. You must understand that before we are willing to apply the treatment which is personal faith in Jesus Christ. Every unbeliever needs to hear the warning of Jesus given to the religious leaders in Luke chapter 13. And they saw that the, the Galileans, some of them had been killed, and they saw that the people had, the, the, the Tower of Siloam had fallen on the people, and they go, well, were those people more evil than other people? And Jesus says, listen to me. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And I would say to every one of you who has never pro- fully turned from your own sinful self-direction and put their faith of the trust in Jesus Christ, that's the message. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. But that's not the desire of God. That's not the hope of the gospel. That's the reality that comes. There is the law. We are unable to keep the law. The law, our inability to keep the law. But there's a second reason why we're in trouble. And that is the law's inability to keep us. Not only can't we keep the law, the law can't keep us. If you look at verses 19 and 20, there's two facts reveal the law's impotence in redeeming humanity. First is the result of the law's proclamation. Paul says, we know. Uh, that's a certainty. We know that whatever the law, and I'm contending that the law here means the entire Old Testament, because he's just quoted from Psalms and Isaiah, so he's instilling the whole thing. Whatever the law says, it it, it speaks to those under the law. Who are those under the law? 
First of all, the Jews. They were given the law. They have been given the law. The laws, the, the Jews are under the law of God. That's chapter 2, verses 1 through 29 and everything we've just talked about. But the Gentiles are under the law. The law written in their hearts. Chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And all the law does is declare that the unredeemed human is guilty before a holy God. Now the question is, why does the law speak that we're all guilty? If you look at the text in verse 19, it says, The law that every mouth be closed so that, see the word so that or that? That's the reason why the law pronounces us guilty. The result is that every mouth is closed. Uh, I came home late one night when I was in high school. After curfew. And I was generally a compliant kid. So I came in late after curfew. My mom was standing there. Busted. You know what? Absolutely no complaints. Absolutely no arguments, no appeals, no disagreement. I was busted. When you're busted, you're quiet. And that's what the text says. You're busted. And the only proper response to being busted is silence. What can you say? And that the entire world will know that they're accountable to God. This is what, what he says. The proclamation, the result of the law's proclamation is that we're, we're silenced before God and we're all guilty before God. Every one of us. All the world may be accountable to God beginning with the Jew, beginning with the Jews who are not at all better than the Gentiles in their humanity. Every unregenerate person is guilty and condemned. And Romans chapter 2, verse 12 says just as much, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. We're guilty. What's the reason for the law's limitation? The reason why the law cannot rescue us is given in verse 20. Because the reason the world is guilty and that we cannot be rescued is because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. All, we're accountable to God. And 320 is a, is a loose translation and modification of Psalm 143, verse 2, declaring that salvation is not possible by keeping the demands of the law. You cannot be saved by keeping the demands of the law. Why is that true? Two reasons. First of all is our inability to keep the law. You can't be saved by keeping the law. Why not? Because uh, you can't keep it. Which is everything that we just talked about in verses 10 through 18. We're, we're toast. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who does what good, no, not one. We're, we're all toast. Before We human beings can't do it. So the, the, nobody is able to do it. Secondly, because of the law's deficiency. Look ahead at verse 21 of chapter 3. It says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by, by, by the law and the prophets. See, apart from the law, I mean, we, 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 none of us can do it. 
None of us becomes righteous. God's righteousness comes to us apart from it, separate from it. Through faith in Jesus Christ, forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life comes only through faith in Jesus Christ, not by the law. So the law is deficient. It can't rescue us. We can't keep it, and it can't save us. Acts chapter 13, verse 39, says this, And through him, everyone who believes is freed from the things which, from which you could not get this, could not be freed through the law of Moses. Can't come through the law of Moses. I'm not going to go there, but you can write these down. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16, and chapter 3, verse 11. And the reason that no flesh is justified by works, he goes on to say in verse 20, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Why is no flesh justified by, by the works of the law in his sight? Notice the four there at the end of verse 20. And this is the reason. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The only reason for the law is to make us aware that we're sinful. Romans chapter 7, verse 17. Um, 7, 7, I'm sorry. What shall we say then? The, the, is the law sin? Far from it. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known uh, coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So that's the reason for the law, is to expose our sin. When uh, we were getting ready for my dad's farm sale, mom and dad's uh, moving sale, he had this tractor in the machine shed. When we drove the tractor out into the light, we could see how filthy it was. It needed to be washed up. The law shines a light on our sinfulness. The law exposes the filth of our sin and the fact that we are going to be punished. The law brought the reality of sin into full view, but it didn't provide the remedy. And that's what Paul's driving at. You need a remedy. But in order to know that you need a remedy, you must know that you're sick. If you're here this morning and you've never fully surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you've never put your faith and your trust in what Jesus did on the cross, guess what? You are dead guilty before God. You are absolutely destined for destruction, and that is horrible. But it's not where God leaves you. He leaves you with the promise. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Christ to all who believe. So my plea with you is repent of your sin Turn from your own self-way and trust in Christ and you will not be one of these people unrighteous. You will become the righteousness of God. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I have three things I want to leave with you. And the first one is this. Remember with humility that we're pardoned by His rich mercy. We are not rescued because of us. We're rescued because of his mercy. Secondly, recognize the reason for the confusion, the chaos, the corruption all around us is that people need the Lord. Unrepentant people do what comes naturally. They need Jesus. They are not the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. And finally, remain faithful to expose the sin of humanity and to explain the answer, which is Jesus. 
we do but nobody a, a, a favor by glossing over the wickedness of our world. We cannot say that certain behaviors are acceptable to God and that we can wash them and, and, and pat them on the back and celebrate the insanity and perversion and sin and deception. No, because these people will go to hell if we don't point them out that they're sinful. And you know what? We were there. And as we take the bread and the cup, what a joy it is to think that this reminds us of God's gracious and only provision for our sin. It's the only solution. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus, take a moment to thank him for what he's rescued you from, what we've just described. And rejoice in what he's done and to confess any known sin and then come and take it. And if you don't know Jesus, guess what? This is a reminder that you, it's the only solution. Turn and trust him today. Let's pray. Father, it's a hard word, but it's a needed word. We're dead in our sins and our trespasses. We can be made alive in Christ. And I pray that if there's any who doesn't, don't know you this morning, listening online or here this morning in person, who's never surrendered their lives to you, never accepted and knowledge that they are a sinful person headed for an eternity apart from God because of their own self-directed life, that they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ and what he did on the cross as the only payment, the only hope, so that the righteousness of God could be put into them, which they don't have in themselves. And for those of us who know you, Lord, may we rejoice and humbly acknowledge that we are unworthy, but you made us whole and righteous by your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name.